everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now here's the show. Welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast, the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. This week we've got a guest joining us, David Perry. David has been keeping fish tanks for more than 30 years and has been keeping saltwater tanks for the past five years. And most important of all, he has been an active participant in our forums and a great supporter of the Talking Reef Podcast. Dave is going to be doing a couple shows with me, and for this show we're going to be talking about something that has come up in the forums in the past. Today we'll be discussing the collection and use of natural seawater how to collect it, and exactly how we're going to use that water right from the ocean in our own little reef tanks. So Dave, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Rob. Um, I really appreciate your having me on the show. Um, as an end user, I have uh, grown to really appreciate your podcast and the website, and I'm glad that uh, you have reason to uh, want to talk to me today. Excellent. It's always good to hear uh, the good comments from everybody out there, and I appreciate you taking the time to do this show with us. Um, so, again, in this show, what we're going to talk about is natural seawater. So, Dave, can you tell us first, where did you learn about collecting uh, natural seawater? Okay. Well, um, as a young boy, I actually experimented and played with my own saltwater tanks uh, based upon collection of in and around the Cape Cod area. Uh, but it wasn't until I joined and got familiar with the Boston Reefer Society that uh, I learned about the use of natural seawater in our reef tank systems. There were there were quite a few members within the organization who had tried it, and uh, I, I read about it and decided to give it a try myself. Excellent. Now that's the Boston Reefer Society. Do you, they have a website or something you want to plug? Yes, they do. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can visit us uh, and uh, at our homepage. Uh, bostonreefers.org and uh, there's a forum there as well and uh, you can poke in and see the happenings of Boston Reefers. And it's been a, a good club open to everybody even outside the Boston area. <laughs> Absolutely yes we have uh, it's, it's a, a great society started off just a, a few years ago with a handful of founding members and uh, it's grown to be a, a wonderful organization and uh, very well organized. Uh, just recently uh, hosted uh, MACNA within Boston, and uh, it's testament to a ever-growing uh, group of folks uh, who are committed to the hobby. Excellent. So, now about the natural seawater. What is so beneficial about collecting natural seawater and using it in, in your saltwater reef tanks? Well, first and foremost, the benefits for me were uh, monetary savings. You know, if you were located somewhere in the middle of uh, the United States and you didn't have access to seawater, it, it might not be an option. But for me, um, it was a very inexpensive way of uh, conducting water changes within my reef and, uh, you know, providing good quality water to the uh, inhabitants of my reef. Now, just a, a quick side note. Have you done anything? Is this actually cheaper for you than using a home RODI unit and mixing your own? Well, for me, yes, it is. Um, because you've got ready uh, access to it. Uh, I've got ready access to, to the, the natural salt water. Um, I have the resources to collect it, and uh, I f feel pretty confident in the water, and uh, to me it was just a no-brainer. Gotcha, and that makes sense. Now, um, first of all, before we go dive into the, more of the details, do you know of any official testing that has shown 
uh, a true positive or negative to using natural seawater, um, or is this information based on the experience of you and your fellow reefers? No, this this is most definitely uh, experiences based upon my own use and the use of natural salt water by some of my peers. While there are some documents that I've seen that uh, compare and contrast the uh, makeup of natural salt water versus synthetic uh, synthetic sea salts that we use, um, there are not, to my knowledge, any documents that actually have conducted tests and studies. Right, doing side-by-side -side comparison. So as, as Dave just explained, the one thing that we do want to mention is that this is another one of those potentially controversial topics. The stuff that we're going to talk about at this point is based upon um, years worth of experience and knowledge from Dave and from you know the people that you know his peers, the people that he deals with and, and associates with in in the reefing hobby and stuff like that. So um, we're going to share his his thoughts and his ideas on this. Um, so moving forward on with this, so you've outlined uh, basically you know some of the benefits of using it in a reef tank and and stuff like that. Um, do you know anything about using it in a fish only tank? Um, or is this something you've really only used in, in uh, a reef tank? Well, um, I'm using it right now in uh, my seahorse tank, which I consider fish only, although there are some small softies and zoanthids in there. Um, I've not seen uh, or, or talked to a whole lot of folks about the use in a freshwater-only system. I did note some posts on uh, the Boston Reefer's website about hair algae that uh, instantly, uh, you know, cleaned and, and uh, other nuisance algae problems that uh, disappeared when folks started using the uh, natural seawater. In a fish-only tank? That's correct. Yeah, and some of the other stuff that you talked about was some of the effects um, that you've heard reports on it having on various coral. Well, I, I can uh, explain um, some, note, uh, some things that I've noticed within my own systems um, in my 75-gallon reef tank, um, I previously housed a, a large aquapora. Um, we refer to it as the Larry Jackson uh, aquapora. <laughs> and uh, upon changes, uh, water changes, um, or introduction of natural seawater at all to my system, I noticed immediate polyp extension, and uh, you know, as if they were actually fishing and feeding uh, for plankton within the water columns. Excellent. Now, again, this is just based on your experience, so um, just so everybody understands. And now, for moving on there, so based on the information that you've gathered from local reefers, are there any situations where you would not use natural seawater in a tank? Well, personally, I, I try not to use it in any of my fry systems where I need greater control over the water quality. Um, I have a hard enough time with my seahorse tanks just keeping hydroids out, um, so I tend to lean uh, on the uh, RODI system and the synthetic sea salts that I use for those type of applications. In other words, in the, the larval tanks where you're breeding your um, seahorses and stuff like that, right? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. With fry so delicate at that stage, uh, I wouldn't want to... Uh, take the chance of, of having some water chemistry problems or, or a, a parasite or a problem with uh, the fry. Excellent. Totally understand. Um, dealing with the same thing with the, the baby clownfish, I know how uh, sensitive the water conditions, you know, how they have to be and how you have to make, you know, very good care that the, that stuff is good. So 
Now, about the natural seawater, where can you collect natural seawater? This isn't something that you can just go down to your beach and pull right off the beach, is it? Well, uh, <laughs> that's really hard to answer. It's a, that's not a quick and easy yes and no uh, question. Uh, there are people who do put on waders and wade out into the beach and, and collect. Um, personally, I, I use my, uh, I have access to a boat and uh, I collect a little bit further offshore, but um, by all means, folks have just dropped buckets uh, off of docks and piers, uh, and like I said, others have collected it from, um, from beaches. And if depending on where you're collecting it from, if you are collecting it from a, a a pier or a dock or something like that. Uh, some of the things you might want to look out for, like pollutions from boat traffic and stuff like that, huh? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's uh, there's a there's a lot to look out for, and, and you know, boat traffic is is just one issue. Um, you know, there's obviously some some wastes and some possible pollutions from um, from boating areas. Um, you want to steer clear of. Areas where there are um, fast-moving tributaries, you know, river streams, or, or even marshlands that uh, that are, are meeting the ocean, and uh, you know there, there'll be problems with uh, runoff from fertilizers. Um, you know, I don't collect near park areas where there's lush green lawns, and you know that they've been fertilizing. Uh, you want to stay away from anywhere there might be a storm drain or an industrial site. Um, you know, any, anywhere where you could reasonably expect uh, land-based or, or shore-based uh, water contaminants. So, in other words, you want to stay, for, you know, stuff that you mentioned, anywhere where runoff could occur, um, lots of boat traffic, is a, like a harbor or something like that, um, also probably shipping lanes or anything that may be in your area. Now, when you collect it, how far out do you normally go when you, when you pull your buckets? Well, again, I have the opportunity to uh, to use my boat, and I collect water uh, in an area between Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket on Cape Cod. Um, I'm at least uh, five nautical miles out into the ocean in between the islands at uh, an area called, uh, I believe it's Muscogee Channel. Cool. Now, um, now that we know where to get it, what's the once you're out there and you decide to get it, what's the best way to actually collect this this water? Well, again, um, I stick to the old-fashioned method of, of uh, five-gallon buckets and, and a nylon rope, and uh, I make sure I try to drop my bucket down a depth of two foot or greater. Um, you know, the deeper you collect uh, in the water column, it's probably better off, unless you're scraping the substrate or stirring up any possible pollution. Right. Now, something that, I, that you had noted earlier was uh, there's some possible risks when you're dropping your bucket down that far with currents and stuff like that oh yes I've, I've had the unpleasant experience of having my bucket get caught in a current and uh, they literally act like wind socks and uh, almost pulled me over and uh, so now I make uh, sure that if I'm collecting salt water that I have someone with me or uh, I keep in mind the currents and uh, you know tie off the end of the rope as a safety precaution Okay, so yeah, it's it's a good idea if you're gonna go that far out. Make sure you got people with you, which is probably good boating safety guidelines anyway. So, absolutely, I'm a fan of the buddy system. Yeah, there you go. Now, um, to talk about that a little bit more, once you get all your buckets and you get all that stuff back to your house, now how long can you store it for before actually I've, using it in your tank? Yeah, I've used water. Um, 
that has been stored for a period of time. Um, I've come home um, from a trip to the Cape and, and immediately poured five gallons of water into a system and, and, and you know, did a small water change. Um, this is where the controversy kicks in, and it could uh, get a lot like a deep sand bed versus shallow sand bed, but, uh, you know, some folks feel that you should let the water settle for some, some time and, and or filter it before you use it. Um, in some cases or applications, I might agree, but for the most part, um, I've got a trusted and proven collection site, and unless I note real problems with the water, I've used it right away. Well, that's something I think that goes with even when you're mixing your own, because I've read mixed reviews. So when, even when you're mixing, you know, fresh RO water with a in, like an IO salt or instant ocean salt, some people say that you should aerate it overnight, or you should let it sit overnight, or you should heat it overnight, and there's seems to be, you know, there's always a little bit of controversy in there. So um, do you, now, because this is coming right out of the ocean and you have um, usually some sort of bacteria or, or, or life in there, is there any issues with it settling out or causing, you know, a, a collection of stuff at the bottom of the buckets while they're stored? Yes, a absolutely. Um, if you do store your water, it's best to store it in a closed bucket and in a uh, dark and uh, cooler environment. Um, just to help with the natural shelf life of the water. And at that point in time, you will notice some sediments that settle to the bottom. And this is plankton and other small microscopic matter that, uh, you know, was not being fed and didn't make it. And uh, it's a silt that you find on the bottom of the barrel. And I simply siphon the water out of the barrel, leaving the last inch or so not to disturb or drag the silt into the uh, water that I'll be using for the system. Right. So while if this is something that you decide to try to do and you notice the stuff in there and you, after it's been sitting for probably a few days or so, it's not necessarily something to worry about. It's something that's normal, right? Absolutely not. It's, it's something that, that you need not worry about. It's, uh, it's almost a natural filtration of the water itself. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. Now, um, once you get it and you've got it collected and stored and it's in your house or your basement in your backyard or wherever, um, when you come back, can you just basically pull the bucket off the boat and go pour it in your tank, or is there anything that you need to check or adjust or anything like that before you actually use it? Well, you, you should be checking your water um, before you just use it, whether it's uh, natural seawater or if it were a synthetic blend. You want to make sure that there are some basic parameters that are met to ensure that uh, you're, you're not shocking your system by increasing or decreasing pH or starving your system of calciums, uh, absolutely. Um, again, I, I do some quick tests when I collect the water for, for the calci calcium, alkalinity, uh, pH, um, and adjust where necessary. Um, during some collections, when the Gulf Stream's actually closer to the New England coast uh, in late summer, um, there's very little adjustments that I have to do, and at that point in time, I may just use the water immediately. Excellent. Now, does it make, I don't know how wide your collection area has been, but it, have you noticed any difference or do you know of differences if you were to collect from a more tropical region versus where you're at, which is a more northern Atlantic region? Oh, absolutely. Um, the further you get away from the equator and the natural reef systems, the lower you'll find your calcium levels, um, other trace elements uh, that you may or may not be interested in. Uh, again, if you're in a fish-only tank, you might not be worried um, a whole lot about magnesiums and other elements, but uh, there certainly are differences. And again, uh, depending on the application, 
uh, a reef system versus fish only, uh, you, you will want to adjust and, and closely match what it is that the inhabitants of your tank really need. Okay, and that's great. And, you know, and that's something that goes along with, you know, everything that I've always said on the show. If you're adding anything, whether it's a supplement or doing a water change, um, it's very important to make sure that you're you're testing what you're dosing, if it's an additive or in it's a, if it's a water change, you should always make sure that your, your levels match up. Um, when you're dealing with the synthetic sea salt mixes, uh, a lot of people will take a lot of stuff for granted, me included. Um, it's usually a, a good assumption that if you're using the same brand salts in the same water source, that you usually don't have too much to worry about. But it's important when you're when you're pulling this natural seawater, um, you can get a difference if you collect five gallons from one spot and move over, you know, 50 yards. The parameters of that water could be different, um, even from spot to spot or day to day. Uh, so. Uh, it's important to make sure that's all tested in you, you know, every single time and not to take that for granted. Absolutely, and, and you bring up some great points there, Rob. Uh, you know, e even within one collection area, uh, there can be uh, differences within the quality of water. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, tributaries uh, dumping fresh water from a river or a stream nearby can obviously adjust uh, or, or make an adjustment uh, in the salinity in that area. Um, Collecting water not too long after a significant rain event um, could cause problems. Uh, you know, again, the runoffs could bring nitrates, phosphates. Uh, you look at your average uh, fertilizers, and uh, you'll see it's all there, and that runs into the water, and, and it makes a difference. Yeah, the phosphates and stuff like that, especially from the fertilizers, is a great point. I know that when, you know, basically when, when we're growing the, the phytoplankton in, in our little laboratory bottles and stuff like that, I mean, one of the things that we add is the fertilizer right to that, and it's, you know, made to promote the, the growth of the algae and stuff like that that you're going to be feeding. So, yeah, watching that stuff, testing for that stuff, you know, important with this, uh, just with anything else that you do, um, you should really be careful not to make any assumptions or take this kind of stuff for granted. So, um, all great advice. Uh, so, you know, at this point, um, we're about running out of time. Uh, so, Dave, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to join the show and share your experiences with us. Um, now, you're planning to come back on the show and help us out with something else. You want to tell us what that's going to be about? Sure, absolutely. Um, like I stated earlier, I, I really do appreciate uh, the site, the uh, podcast, and um, what it means for people, whether they're new to the hobby or experienced. And uh, the uh, website itself has brought up a, a lot of good questions and threads. And uh, my most recent project of expanding a sump for my seahorse tank has uh, uh, been a catalyst for a lot of questions about seahorse keeping. And uh, I happen to have a tank of Hippocampus reedy here um, that uh, I've had full life cycles on, on them uh, from from birth to reproduction, and um, I'm going to field some questions from some folks and uh, help you out in the future with uh, the topic regarding seahorses. Excellent. Now, just so everybody knows, we are tentatively scheduling that for mid to late February time frame. Um, and at this point, if you have questions um, that you would like Dave to try to address, again, Dave's not coming on as a seahorse expert. What he's coming on to do is talk about his experiences um, over time dealing with these type, specific types of seahorses, uh, the species that he mentioned, uh, and stuff like that. So if you've got questions, um, feel free to head over to the forums. 
uh, we'll post, you know, get the questions posted in there in the podcast questions, uh, show questions for them, and I will get those collected, and we can get those on the show, and um, after Dave goes through and explains uh, some stuff about setup and, and care and maintenance, then we can start fielding some questions if you've got questions about uh, seahorses. So I know that it's something that I'm interested in. Personally, I have never kept seahorses, but it's something that I've wanted to do. So I know I'm going to learn a lot from the show, and I'm pretty excited about doing it. So, so again, Dave, thanks for taking time to come on the show, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Well, again, thank you for having me. I really appreciated the opportunity. Again, that was David Perry, a member of the Talking Reef community. Now, if you have a topic that you are familiar with and you'd like to talk about it on the show, just like Dave did, please feel free to contact me at podcast at talkingreef.com. Now we're going to move on to this week's tip section. This is something that I've been working on for a little bit, and I finally decided to start. Uh, basically, each week I'm going to try to get into tip or trick or something like that. Uh, I'll have more information about that later at the, in the end of the show at the community update. But for this week's tip, uh, this tip came from a post on the forums, and I thought it would be a great thing to start off uh, the tip of the week with. And the tip is drill your return lines. Uh, basically, what I mean by drill your return lines is you have uh, in your you have a return line that'll come up from a sump, and that returns water back into your tank after it goes you know after going through your sump. Now what happens is when the power goes out or you shut off the that return pump, all the water is going to go back down that hose that the return line and it's going to create a siphon. Now what happens is it's going to drain out there and depending on where the opening is in the return line where it actually releases the water back out, it could actually siphon a great deal of water out of your tank. So it's important to uh, drill a hole in the return line just below the surface of the water, and what'll happen is once it'll si- it'll siphon a little bit out, and then once that air that little hole hits the air, it'll break the siphon. Uh, it's also important to make sure that you remember that a little bit of the water, or a good a portion of the water, is still going to go down there. So make sure that your sump is large enough to catch the return water, so you don't have any uh, flooding issues. So. That's this week's tip of the week, and we're going to move on now to another new section. Uh, This is the news section uh, that will be in this podcast and future podcasts. Again, stay tuned to the end of the the show for more updates on these new segments. Uh, As this is something new, I haven't collected a whole lot of news for this section just yet, but uh, this week I simply wanted to mention the Science Friday podcast again. I've talked about this podcast before, and this is basically an NPR uh, broadcast, and occasionally they do... Uh, science-related topics that are topics that are related to marine biology or reef ecosystems or something. Now, on January 6th, they released a segment that goes over a natural study uh, that show that talks about marine reserves, where fishing is restricted, the results in healthier coral reefs, and where there's sustained fisheries and stuff like that. So. Um, it's an interesting episode, uh, so make sure if it's something you want to check out, I will have a link in the show notes for this episode, and you can also find it by just going right to their website at www.sciencefriday.com. Now we're going to move on to the questions and answers. Uh, sorry, questions and answers section of the of the show. This week, uh, I pulled a question out of the discussion forum. And this one came from Reef Baby, uh, a relatively newer member of the forums. And basically what Reef Baby was asking about, and I kind of paraphrasing the, the, the 
post because it was a little bit larger. Um, but basically, it was I was wondering what your opinions are on UV sterilizers and whether they're needed just as added benefits to helping control parasites and algal blooms. Now, they can do a little bit more, they can do a little bit less. My general rule of thumb on UV sterilizers is that if you need one, generally you'll know it. They are best used in tanks where you have a large bio load and need the extra filtration. Um, or when dealing with some types of parasites that might have gotten in there, possibly some types of infections, bacterial, fungal infections, and so forth. Now, while using proper quarantine procedures is always great uh, to keep sick fish and, or infectious fish out of your tank, uh, what can happen, or what happens if a fish that you've had for six months or, or longer develops some kind of infection or some type of parasite? It can happen. Um, in a fish-only tank, you can possibly remove the, the fish and put it into a quarantine tank. But in a reef tank or in a fish-only tank that's got lots of live rock, getting the fish out of there is next to impossible. And anybody that's got a tank set up like this and has tried to catch a fish in there knows exactly what I'm talking about. You'll destroy half your tank before you ever catch that fish, especially if it's a small, quick fish. Now, um, a UV sterilizer might come in handy in these types of situations. Uh, it does provide a little bit extra filtration. Now, again, if you are not under heavy bio load, you probably don't need one. Um, but, you know, if it's something that you can get, maybe you can get your hands on a used one or something like that, they can be useful to have around, a, you know, just in case. So we're going to move on uh, to the closing part of the show. We're going to talk about the community updates. Again, this is the section where we're going to finish up the show and talk about all the different stuff going on the forums, this, that, and the other thing. So don't forget to call in any questions, introductions that you may have, or comments into the voicemail line. It's quick and easy. Just pick up the phone, dial a phone number, 586-486-3357, and you will get your uh, comment or question played on the air if you want. The next thing I want to talk about is the couple new sections that I've added to the show, the news section and the tip of the week section. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to set up a listener submission forum. This is going to be under the other topics or other forums in there that are related to the podcast show itself, where we have like the feedback and the podcast show questions form. I'm going to have a submission form. And this form is going to be set up for you as a listener to submit ideas for the tips and tricks section of the show. Uh, if you've got tips or tricks, uh, just make a post in there, label the, the title of the post with tips and tricks so I can easily identify it. And then you can put the, you know, you can put other stuff in the in the subject, but just so it makes it a little bit easier, you know, tips and tricks that I can pop in there and I can grab them and I can start collecting more. I do have some that I've gathered, um, but putting new ones in there, if I see one that's real good, I might move that up and do it on a sooner show. Also, for this same forum, stuff that I'm going to be looking for, uh, again, this is a community show, so I want to try to get the community involved as much as I can and have them a part of it. So for the news section, if you come across any articles or any news articles relating to corals, marine fish, both captive, natural reef, anything like that, anything that you think would be interesting to um, the a hobbyist that would be listening to this show like yourself, please feel free to post the article in there. Um, it's important that please don't copy and paste a text in there. Uh, you can do that, but if you do that, make sure you post a link to the source of it so we can uh, properly credit where the article was published originally. So uh, again, I'm just looking for stuff that we can highlight over in a couple minutes and we can talk about on the show. 
The last thing I wanted to bring up real quick is um, the with the new chat system, I think this is something I've mentioned before, um, but we do have the, the chat boards uh, up and running. Uh, there is a thread in the general discussion forum on the Talking Reef website, so make sure you chime in there and let us know uh, a, t a good time for you if you're interested in participating in a community chat. Again, another way to bring the whole community together. Uh, there's been a couple times when a group of us have gotten in there and it's been a lot of fun getting to talk and actually have more of an interactive conversation with other members of, of the community. And one last quick thing, make sure that you check out the Frapper map. Uh, there's a link on the home page of the Talking Reef website in the lower left hand corner. You can click on that and add a pin. I know we've got a, almost 40 people in there. So make sure you get your little picture uh, and pin on that map. And last but not least, don't forget to vote on the, the the squid contest that's been running forever. Um, we need like three more votes or something for me to end the end the contest. So I'd really like to get that ended and get a prize out to the winner. Uh, so please make sure you jump in there, get those last couple votes in there, so we can close that up. And that's going to wrap up this week's Talking Reef podcast. So I will talk to you next week with the Reef Keeping edition of the Talking Reef. Podcast.